0: Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred in me forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commended the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Thanks, Izzy. Happy birthday. Happy <laughs> birthday. Oh, uh, hi, you guys. Good to see you. Um, that last verse, okay. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And with that, I would love to say, Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to take a wild guess that this is not the first story or verse that comes to mind when you think of Mother's Day. I wouldn't recommend putting it in your mom's card today. Um, Maybe go with like Proverbs 31, her children will rise and call her blessed. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Proverbs 31, you can put that in there. That one's for free. Um, If we haven't met yet, I'm Aliyah, I'm one of the pastors here, and today we get to work through Jonah in the belly of the fish. So this part of the story on this particular day is something I'm really excited about. So as Jonah is in the belly of this big fish, there's this deep despair. And simultaneously, there's this promise that out of that despair, there will be new life. So the most profound and common embodied experience of new life that we all encounter is through moms. So all of us are here because somebody gave birth to us. This is a reality. Now, in this room alone, I know that there's a spectrum, like a wide spectrum of how we relate to this word, mom. So despair and questioning and hope and God's faithfulness are all part of what we're working through today and it's rooted in new life. So the root of the word despair in Latin actually means without hope. And as followers of Jesus, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that we grieve but we do not despair because we have hope that goes beyond the constraints of our present circumstances. For all of us, there are really dark, tough moments in life when we are faced with a choice. Will we choose the hope God offers us by trusting Jesus or not? So, in winter 2007, I was working as a server at a restaurant in Oregon and I was interning at my church whenever I had free time, and I was going to community college. And when I wasn't doing those three things, I was on the rainy mountain called Mount Hood outside of Portland. I used to snowboard. You wouldn't know it now. I used to be cool, you guys. So it was a weird time, and I had stayed in my hometown when most all of my friends left and they went to state school. They were becoming teachers and nurses and all kinds of great things. was so happy for them. Um, but I started to become a little bit disillusioned. And I had no real plan, no real plan for the community college that I was at with a bunch of middle-aged people with their rolly backpacks. And I didn't really have like a post-community college plan. Um, and after walking through some really tough ministry months, just in the internship that I was doing, for the first time ever, I really started to question God and His intentions for me. So I remember being in the Old Testament in my devotions, just, you know, you're in the Bible. I was in the Old Testament, and, and the God of the Old Testament, He seemed really mean, and I just was struggling to understand Him, and I kind of just quit reading altogether. And before I knew it, I wasn't really talking to him very much, and I wasn't really seeking what he had for my life. So I became pretty apathetic just in that space, in my hometown, just kind of cruising and not really thinking about what I was doing. So when I hit this season of apathy, disillusionment, and then ultimately, a certain level of rebellion was what followed for me. So through quite a few mentors and friends, I knew that I was supposed to keep pursuing some kind of Bible education, keep pursuing ministry, good things that I had been passionate about previously. And a good friend of mine that was a few years older actually gave me several options and said, you need to pursue these. This is the way you need to go. And you know those moments when you have somebody that is for you and for your good, and you know that God is using them? But I was in this season of apathy where I just looked at him and was like, yeah, I'm probably not going to do that. I just didn't want to learn about God in this season. So did I realize in that moment that that was a problem and repent and get back on track? No, not at all. So instead, I watched a movie, um, and it's called Into the Wild. And it's a story about a guy who burns his passport, moves to Alaska, moves into a school bus in the middle of nowhere, and he ends up dying. So. This was my inspiration for the next season of my life. I decided, <laughs> I know, when I was 19, my frontal cortex wasn't quite done doing its thing. so But I did find a job, and I took my best friend with me. And this is where the story, I'm going to be honest, this is where the story starts to sound satire, kind of like Jonah, a little bit unbelievable, so hang with me. We signed contracts to work as servers and housekeepers at a big resort. We got a job with the chef who told us how grand it was, and he was excited for us to come. Um, In hindsight, I have no idea why he would have been excited about two 19-year-old girls coming to work in Alaska, but you know. So it was a resort where people would stay um, before they were taken up the Denali near Denali National Park into the mountains, and they would jump out of a helicopter and snowboard down uh, ungroomed terrain, super cool. So it's called heliboarding. So we thought we were going to work at a heliboarding resort, pretty cool. And we were told we'd have a car and we'd have snowmobiles and we would have um, days off each week where we could explore and snowboard ourselves and all these great things. So we got there (coughs) and this was the grand resort. We were three hours outside of Anchorage in the middle of nowhere. There's not really cell service unless you literally stand on top of one of the buildings. Um, And it's a very cool place. The owners of this place were super kind. It's very small, um, but it's not what had been described to us. We also didn't have the car we were promised or the snowmobiles or the days off. So we were working 18 hour days. There was only five hours of daylight when we were there because it's Alaska in the middle of winter. So these days started to feel pretty suffocating. And the pay wasn't even as good as we had been told. So not too long into this adventure, um, we found out that the chef who had hired us was embezzling money from the owners of this small lodge. And he was actually wanted for the same kind of crimes in lots of other US states. Yeah. If it's too good to be true, it is. So the name he was going by wasn't even his real name. And I want to give you a pro tip, if you're young or whatever. Use Google before you do weird stuff, because we're in the middle of Alaska finding out some pretty crazy stuff about our boss. So me and my friend were out here in the middle of nowhere working long days, and we are getting pretty worried. We're trying to figure out what to do. We're trying to call our parents without him knowing, Like, how do we get out of this mess? We don't even have a ride back to the airport. So here's one more unbelievable part. After months of not reading my Bible, I opened just to where I had left off in my reading plan, and it was the story of Jonah. I knew that God was telling me that I was running from Him, and my apathy had landed me in a pretty scary situation. So this was our view. Um, The next slide. Yeah, this was our view from, like, the lodge that we worked at. It was beautiful. When we first got there, I was like, I've arrived. I'm into the wild. I'm the guy. (laughs) But kind of as the weeks went on, we realized, like, these mountains are going to swallow me. I don't feel like I'm going to make it out of this situation. So to make a long story short, we ended up needing to hitchhike that three hours, like negative degrees, all the way to Anchorage um, so that we could fly back to Portland. Actually, the owners of this lodge were super kind, and they told us just try to leave at night when he won't know because they weren't sure what he was going to do. He was a scary guy. Um, But we made it. it We made it to the airport, and this is the last Horrible part. We abandoned half of our luggage because we couldn't afford to take it home. So we just were like, I don't know, like I don't know, leave it on the, leave it on the uh, sidewalk. And we went into the airport, and the airport went into a code yellow security breach. And we saw TSA walk by with our suitcases, and we were just like, that seems weird. It seems dangerous. I hope everybody's fine. Yeah. Word to the wise, apparently TSA doesn't love abandoned luggage, so don't take it. When we got back to Portland, I really had returned, resolved to seek what God wanted for my life, and especially wanted to keep diving into the Old Testament. This is really—seems small, but this is a huge silver lining of this story. God used this opportunity in my rebellion to say, no, I've been the same, and I want to use the Old Testament to show you my character, and I'm even going to let you resonate with the character in this text from thousands of years ago. You are Jonah. You ran from me, and I am good, and I am faithful. So um, this is what God does. The book of Jonah reveals things about us. So let's get into it. So do we have any youth kids in the room? Raise your hand up high if you're here. Any kids at all? I see you. Okay, You get first dibs. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the story of Jonah? The whale. You did it. Amazing. So this is the first thing that we all think of. This is the clip art on the front of the story for Jonah. This is what we think of when we think of VeggieTales. But this is actually not the most important thing in this story. What happens inside of the fish is infinitely more important than the fish itself. So it's a complex story, and like all Scripture, we want to first read it in its context as it's intended. So the style of the story of Jonah is dramatic satire—think Saturday Night Live, kind of. Um, it's, it's big and it's sarcastic and it's actually pretty funny in a dark humor way if you're into that. So everything is overdone and in this account it wants to amplify three realities. So number one, it amplifies Jonah's despair. We are with him in it. He brings us along with where he's at. The second thing is God's faithfulness. This is on display throughout this whole story. While Jonah goes up and down and is unfaithful and has a bad attitude and is honestly a very difficult character, God remains faithful. And then the third thing is we are supposed to see ourselves in this story. When despair hits, will we choose to hope in God or not? This is the question that Jonah, the book of Jonah, wants to ask. So Jonah tries to choose his comfort and preferences over people who deeply need salvation. He hates Nineveh and the people who dwell there. In running from God, he reaches a point of such apathy that he asks the pagan sailors to throw him overboard. So Tanika is actually going to take us back to chapter one next week, and she's going to walk us through the whole boat scene where Jonah is experiencing this apathy and asks to be thrown overboard. But today, on Mother's Day, I wanted to take a deep dive into the despair that we find in the text today and the hope that is in there too. Taking a deep dive. You guys, he got thrown overboard. That's my dad joke on Mother's Day. Okay, I will stop. I'll stop. I'll see myself out. Even when Jonah is the worst, God is faithful. And there's a beautiful way I love that this is put. It's God's severe mercy shows up in the belly of this fish. Jonah was hoping to die when he asked to be thrown overboard. That's where he was at. You cannot get much lower than being asked to be thrown out so you can just die. Jonah's despair was not only self-inflicted, it was also absorbed from his culture, and, and very, uh, he had very real fears. So we can look at Jonah and we can say, why won't you just do what you want? what you're supposed to do? God called you to this. He's obviously going to give you what you need. But Assyria was beyond violent and abusive to his nation. So Jonah's fears were understandable, and while his fears were understandable, they were also sinful. And these are two things that we hold often. We are a mixture. Generally, we do have fears that are rooted in truth, but we also hold the sin with that. So it's easy to look at Jonah and judge him for his hatred towards these people, but this should cause us to do some self-reflection. Who are we excusing ourselves from loving? Maybe somebody comes to mind. Who do we feel is a lost cause or is so far gone that God couldn't save them? I think in our best moments, we'd like to say, nobody, God can save whoever. But in our our worst moments, there are people that we just give up on. So we see his descent down to Sheol, and he ends up in the belly of a fish. Now what do you do when you find yourself in the belly of a fish? Probably write poetry, I'd imagine, that's what we would all do, that's a joke. But that's what Jonah decided to do. Gets in this fish and decides poetry is what he's going to do for the next three days. So this poetry is rich with wisdom, and it points to the faithfulness of God, and it actually points to the gospel. So let's walk through this scene together. Verse 17, chapter 1. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. As Jonah is sinking, God provides a strange, watery tomb for him. But this tomb ends up becoming a womb that will give second life to Jonah. This is what God does, and we start to see the gospel here. Just as Jesus was buried and died, and three days later he rose again to conquer death and despair forever. Jonah's Gone for three days and three nights. When Jesus points back, he's usually pointing to himself. So he'll point back to Jonah in order to say, like, no, the gospel was even present with Jonah. So he does this um, in Matthew chapter 12. He says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The man of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh was willing to repent, even though they were being told about salvation from an angry prophet. Jesus is using the story that the Pharisees would have been well acquainted with to draw a parallel and emphasize the importance of his own death and resurrection. He is more than hinting at his identity and authority as the Son of God. You guys, the whole biblical narrative points to Jesus. He is the center of it all. So now we get to walk with Jonah on his journey through despair. Verse 1, chapter 2. For inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. And the currents swirled about me, and your waves and breakers swept over me." Does this language sound familiar? The author is tying Jonah's grief to Psalm 42 in a brilliant way. It says, my tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God and why are you depressed, O my soul? It's all in Psalm 42, verbatim. And this is intentional. This is a liturgy for the depressed. So it's it's not shameful to be depressed. God hands us a liturgy for doing depression fully and faithfully in his presence. Verse 4, I said, I have been banished from your sight Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head, which is kind of funny. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. In these few verses, we see Jonah move through stages. He moves from apathy in the boat to frantic despair in the depths of the sea. And his despair is about to move him to an uninhibited cry for help to the one who alone can save him. This is not actually showing a positive aspect of Jonah's character. Unfortunately, he's actually completely selfish and a terrible person all the way before this and, and even after this, unfortunately. But this is showing the faithfulness of God and his ability to use and partner with imperfect people. This is the severe mercy of the living God. This is the God that we are invited to call upon today for rescue. No matter how mixed or how messed up our motives are, like Jonah, we can call on God and receive his severe mercy. So Jonah cries out, and he preaches truth to his own soul, just like we find in the Psalms. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Now, as we work through the book of Jonah, the Spirit's going to reveal our own struggles and propensities towards sinful habits. Biases, hatred, apathy, rebellion, racism, unfaithfulness, laziness, greed, selfishness, the list could go on and on. As Jonah comes to the end of his prayer, we actually start to see his pride already. The irony is thick. After everything he's just come through, although he's willing to go now, and he's willing to tell them what God has for them, he's willing to tell the Ninevites about salvation, he still is putting down those he's headed to. And this is why we need confession and repentance. This is why we need Jesus. We're a mixture. Our intentions are not always pure. And we must acknowledge our need for God's severe mercy. So in this space, it's that God changes our whole direction. In His presence, when we bring Him our honesty and our repentance, He can turn us the other direction, and our lives will be transformed when we cry out in our despair. So Jonah's despair was self-inflicted, and that might be where you are. As humans, we do put ourselves—myself in Alaska, I put myself in that situation—self-inflicted pain. It's a tough lesson, and that's okay. God is ready to enter into whatever space we're at. There's also despair that comes from circumstances outside of our control— and this is also really important. God wants to enter into that space, too. So I want to be really careful here, because there's a subtle but, but overpowering prosperity gospel of sorts um, that can sneak in, and we are not even aware of it. It's a decoy gospel that says, if I pray and call on Jesus, then all of my difficult circumstances will resolve immediately. I wish I could say I've matured past that, but I would say there are still times that I think, hey, I'm praying, I'm doing what I'm supposed to, and life is still really hard. But this is a transactional love, and it's not what Jesus has on offer. What He does offer is this mercy that enters our mess and walks with us through it. And all the while He continues to sanctify us toward the coming kingdom when every tear will be wiped away. So I've said it many times before, but a strangely comforting promise from Jesus is, in this life you will have trouble. He's not surprised by our despair, and I'd argue that there's no one as well acquainted with despair as Jesus. But He does promise that He will redeem despair. He promises that death won't have the last word. Tim Keller is a well-known pastor in New York, and he's been battling cancer for a few years now. I love, I love Tim Keller. Um, I don't know him. That sounded like I know him, but I don't. I just read his stuff. But in the midst of this battle with cancer, he wrote a book on pain and suffering, and, and he didn't write it from a place of resolve but rather from desolation, and I appreciate it so much to be given words that are written from a place of despair, um, can be a balm for a weary soul going through the same thing. Here's what he has to say. Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound, nailed, so that we could be free. He was cast out so that we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That's being cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond, and the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. These are hard words to read when you're in the midst of suffering. I want to acknowledge that. They are deeply true, and they are deeply entrenched in the gospel. I'll never forget. I was in labor with my second guy, Jude. He's lots of fun. Everything was going okay, and I knew what to expect this time around. I had done it before. Um, But all of a sudden at 3 a.m., something wasn't right, and Jude's heart stopped beating. So I was in the operating room faster than I could comprehend, and and I looked to the side and I saw my nurse who had been with me for the hours previous, and she was crying. And I knew, as my body was going into shock, um, I knew that that was not a good thing. And she mouthed the words, I'm so sorry. I couldn't even tell you how many people were in the room, but I just know it was a lot. And I've never prayed quite like I've prayed in those 17 minutes, Um, absolute desperation, the deepest fear, and the deepest hope that I've ever experienced. And so Jude's cry was the best sound I've ever heard. Um, The doctor was fairly certain that Jude had lost oxygen to his brain and that there would be some negative complications. God answered my prayers, and He intervened, and there was no signs of distress. Jude was great. They thought they were going to have to keep him for 24 hours, but 45 minutes later they brought him to me and they said, I don't know, he's perfect, you're all right, you can have him. A miracle. A year and a half later, my prayers were not answered when we asked God to intervene in a miscarriage. There's countless people walking around with stories of miracles and stories of unimaginable grief. God wants to meet us in all of these moments, both of them. And although they feel unbearable, we don't despair like the world. There's this repeating imagery throughout scripture that points to the pain and the despair that comes before new life. Jonah in the belly of the fish. Jesus on the cross, and then in the tomb. All of creation is longing for the coming kingdom. And the Hebrew word wait and hope are actually the same in the Old Testament. Waiting doesn't always feel hopeful, but that is the truest sense. The embodied experience of a mother's body suffering and living through physical despair before bringing new life into the world It's something that's deeply biblical, and it's deeply gospel-centered, this despair right before new life. And I want to I pause, and I want to acknowledge a couple things on Mother's Day. God loves new life. This is what He does, including through the miraculous process of pregnancy and birth. Then He wants to cultivate those little lives through the loving relationship that images Him in, in a good and faithful parent. It's beautiful. So we pause and we celebrate moms today. What a gift you are, and what an opportunity you have to bear God's image. And I also want to acknowledge that moments when we pause and we reflect on something so deeply significant, it can bring sadness. This day can sting. Maybe, Maybe it's the journey of infertility or miscarriage or abortion or a broken relationship. Maybe it's the absence or the loss of a mom that's made this day a reminder of what's missing. Or maybe it's the unfulfilled hope of being a mother. Or maybe it's grief that actually has nothing to do with Mother's Day, but you are walking in a season of despair. So today both of these are realities—celebration and grief, despair and hope. These are things that God walks with us in, often at the same time. Scripture uses this imagery to describe what all of creation is experiencing right now as we wait for the coming kingdom, and it's in Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the firstfruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of son- to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we will wait for it patiently." So we sit on this side of the cross, and Jesus has conquered sin and death, and we're invited to be fully reconciled to God. Over and again, God found ways to come near through imperfect people like Jonah to reconcile humanity to himself. Until finally the word became flesh, and Jesus brought salvation to us as a suffering servant. In a few minutes, we're going to come to the table and we're going to remember Jesus, God who became man and brought salvation to a broken world who is so powerful that death could not hold him. And now this reality, death could not hold Jesus, and we've been brought into his death and resurrection, so death cannot hold us either. For centuries, God's been taking what looks like death, what seems hopeless, and giving it second life. In 1 Corinthians, this is how Paul describes the rebirth we've been given in Christ. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Jesus makes it so that our suffering is not in vain. Even something as silly as moving to Alaska and being rebellious, Jesus is going to take it. And he's going to say, OK, this is not going to be in vain. I'm going to show you who I am. Yeah. There's something required from us. We bring our repentance. We bring our whole selves to him. We confess and we trust that this good Father can heal. He can bring us out of despair. There is this song we sing, Firm Foundation, I think we'll sing it in a few minutes. Um, But the theme comes from Matthew chapter 7, and there is this line that the Spirit has been using in my life lately. The whole song is about God's faithfulness. And at the bridge we sing, Rain came, wind blew, my house was built on you. And as I sing through it, God keeps reminding me of all the ways that He has built His house in my life. And I'm so grateful to stand with Him. Christ is my firm foundation. All other ground is sinking sand. We do not despair like the world. So we're going to worship in a minute. So let's just pray first and maybe take a second, hands up. Spirit, what do you want to do through this story of Jonah? Somehow, because your word is alive and active, we resonate and identify with a man who spent three days in the belly of a fish. You are good. You bring us out of despair. We trust you. So Lord, would you help us to bring our honest, despair to you, and do something with it, Lord. Give us hope. We want to trade our despair for hope. Amen. There's going to be people on the left and the right. Pastors and leaders will be able to pray for you. Um, And I just want to ask, what do you need? What do you sense the Spirit saying? Is it victory, repentance, healing? What is the Spirit speaking to you in this season of your life? Bring somebody into it. Let them pray for you. They'll just listen to the Spirit for a little bit and then they'll pray with you. That's it. This is how the the Spirit of God works. Last gathering was incredible. Um, God wants to heal. The minute we step forward, And we say, I'm here. I'm ready for you to do your work. He is there. So maybe it's a quickening of your heart or you're sensing something. There's something on the front of your mind that you want prayer for. And I'd say, don't let this moment pass. There will be other moments, but we're here right now. So receive prayer. Um, That's what God's people do. Father, thank you. Amen.